Yes, let me pray as we transition to the sermon this morning. Father, we just confess today, you are unstoppable. Nothing can stop the Lord Almighty. God, would you grant us eyes of faith to see that and to believe that and to rest in that today? God, as we open your word, we want to hear from you. So God, grant us humility. God, give us an eagerness and ready to hear and respond to all you have to say for us today. God, we pray and ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. I'm humbled and honored uh, to be able to bring God's word to you today. If you haven't seen me in a while, my name is John Chastain. I serve as one of the pastors here. As Tanner mentioned, I was on sabbatical over the summer, and this is my first Sunday back to be able to preach God's, yes, thank you. I might have to shake a little rust off today, but hopefully uh, we'll still be all right. But hey, at least I've got one thing going for me today. Everyone, including me, should have got an extra hour of sleep last night, so no excuses uh, for falling asleep or dozing off. I'm really uh, looking forward to you guys locking in here with me today. Well, hey, I get the privilege of kicking off a new sermon series that we're going to be, we're starting today through the book of Esther. So uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles or turn your Bible on and don't hesitate to go to the table of contents if you need to, to find the book of Esther. It's an Old Testament book. Um, and if you go to the table of contents, you'll see Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. It's right after um, Ezra Nehemiah. It's before Job and Psalm. So go ahead and, and find Esther in your Bibles. And uh, my goal is that by the end of our sermon today, that you'll have a, 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 you'll have a, a grasp of the main direction of the book and understanding of where it fits in the larger story of what God's doing in the world, and then you'll also see its relevance to yourself and to us as a church. And so um, here's why this book is important for us. Um, This book is important because it's going to help us answer some questions that we probably all wrestle with. Questions like this, how do we live faithfully in a world that is so hostile to God? Or maybe a question like this, how do we keep walking with God when we don't see him at work in our lives? Esther is going to help us wrestle with these and also with additional questions as we look at the text. But it's also got all the ingredients of a, of a good story. Who loves a good story out there? Yes. I mean, we're going to have a, a beautiful hero, an evil villain. There's going to be irony, suspense romance, there's going to be twists, turns, reversals, all along with a happy ending. So no tissues needed, hopefully, uh, for this story. Um, But hey, here's what let's do. Let's just jump right into the text today, beginning in Esther 1. I'm going to start and read verses 1 through 3a. And, And the beginning of Esther here sets the stage. It's the setting of Esther to help us understand What's going on? The word of God says this. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and his servants. Let's hit pause here. It starts off, now in the days. Here's the thing. We're not told who the author of Esther is, but one thing is clear. The author intends for us to read this book rooted in history as events that actually happened. And, And right off the bat, we're introduced to the first main character, King Ahasuerus. He is better known by his Greek name, Xerxes. History tells us that he was 32 years old when he began reigning, 
and he reigned as king from 486 BC to 465 BC. It says here in the text here that he reigned from India to Ethiopia. I've got a map here. Check this map out. And this shows the, the vast reign of his empire. You can see all the way um, on the far right over here where it says India, which is now like modern day Pakistan. The Persian empire went all the way over here to Northern Sudan. You'll notice that it stops before you get to Athens, Greece up there. But this was the empire of today and he reigned over all of this. Now, as we read in the text here, it says that he reigned from Susa. You'll see in the map here, almost dead center above the Persian Gulf, that we've got Susa there. Right in the center of the empire is where he was, in the citadel. And uh, when you hear this word, the citadel here, it's referring to the capital. It was the palace complex where he reigned from. And this story begins in the third year of his reign. Now, here's what I want to do for a second. I want to zoom back out because we've got enough information here to just zoom back out. And I want to set it within context of what's going on in God's story. And so if we were to zoom out, I want to show up on the screen here something that, that I've shared before when I've taught. It's called the six-act drama of Scripture. And it's basically, this is God's story, what he's doing from beginning to end. And so just to refresh our members, if we were to go all the way back to Genesis, we start in Act 1, Creation. And in creation, we see where God's kingdom is established. You've got Adam and Eve. You've got the people of God enjoying the rest and blessing and presence of God. But tragically, in Act 2, we have the fall. And in Act 2, in the fall, you have Adam and Eve who reject God as king. And as a result, they're separated from the presence of God. But God offers a ray of hope. As you read through Genesis 3, you come to verse 15, where he says, there's going to be an offspring of the woman who was going to crush the offspring of the serpent. And from then on, what we have in the Old Testament is we have a God who's committed to fulfilling his promises to get his people back in the garden so they can enjoy his presence, his rest, and his blessing. And so then we go to Act 3, which is Israel. And we see this with, with Abraham in Genesis 12. And God makes his covenant with Abraham. And he says, I'm going to use you to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And we, we see this offspring that goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. And then he has 12 sons. And we see that Judah is the one who's going to receive the promise. And we keep going through Israel's history. And we see um, that they end up down in Egypt. And so God raises up Moses. And Moses leaves. God's people to the promised land, but he doesn't take them into the promised land. He now raises up Joshua, and Joshua becomes the one who leads God's people into the promised land. And now you have the people of God, and God raises up kings like Saul, David, Solomon, under the reign of God, beginning to enjoy the blessing of God until tragedy comes into the kingdom. And at the end of Solomon's reign, we see the kingdom is divided. You've got the northern kingdom in Israel that's called Israel. You've got the southern kingdom that's called Judah. And what happens here is what God had promised all along. If you reject me, if you turn to idols, then you're going to lose the presence and blessing of God. And you're going to receive my curse, which means you're going to be exiled and scattered among the nations. And that, that's exactly what happens. The northern kingdom in 722 BC is exiled and they're scattered. And then the southern kingdom is exiled in 597 BC. All right, I just threw a lot at you. But here's why this is important. When we pick up here in Esther, we're picking up with King Ahasuerus who reigned from what did I say there? He reigned from, going back to my notes, 486 B.C. So the southern kingdom was 597 B.C. We're talking roughly 110 years later, we're now in the book of Esther. So what's happened is the Jews have been exiled and they've been scattered 
among the nations. And here's why this is important for us. When we read the book of Esther, the Jews have been scattered as far as Susa. We're going to read about this later in the text today. They have no king. They have no land. They have no army. And additionally, next week when we look at chapter 3, we're going to find that there's a powerful ruler who wants to annihilate the Jewish people. That's the setting that we find ourselves here in the book of Esther. And so this book raises a great theological question. God has promised that he is going to use Israel to bless the nations. And now they've been scattered and they're on the verge of extermination. Who is our God? What's God going to do? And so we're going to see Esther as a story about the providence and faithfulness of God to fulfill his covenant and his promises to his people. If we were to be looking at the Hebrew Bible, the book of Esther is a part of, of, of four other festal scrolls. It's a part of what's called the Megalot. And it would be combined and read with the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, and Ecclesiastes. These were, all, these were all books that were related to feasts that they observed. And so the feast that they would observe with the book of Esther is called the Feast of Purim. And it's still today observed by the Jews as a way to commemorate God saving his people. So that's the context. Let's keep reading. Let's pick back up here in verse 3 of chapter 1. And it says, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, the army of Persia Media and the nobles and governors of the princes were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement um, of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So what do we see here? We're introduced to this king who throws two lavish feasts. The first one, it says, lasts 180 days. Do you catch that? Six months. Six months, he throws a feast. He's invited everybody from the empire, all of the key people. What does the text say? It says here he's got officials, servants, the army of Persia and media, nobles, governors of all the provinces. They've all come there, but it doesn't tell us why. History helps us out a little bit. What we know is that King Ahasuerus is planning an invasion of Greece. I showed you the map a second ago, and it, and it showed the empire that went all the way to the edge, but he did not have control of Greece. That's what's happening. And what he's doing is he's rallying support to head for this invasion. And so he's still in this feast, and, and us as the readers and the people are supposed to be left in awe of the power and wealth of the king. So you've got this first feast that's for everyone. And, and the other thing that it teaches us here is that he lavishes his power and wealth on whomever he chooses. But especially this, he will reward those who remain loyal and obedient to him. He then throws the second feast, which says here, 
that it is um, a second feast for the people in Susa, great and small. In other words, all the people in Susa who probably carrying out all the festivities of the past six months, it's like, hey, let me thank you because I know this has been a lot on you. And so he throws a feast for the people in Susa um, to, to thank them for all of their service. And so we have a king here who is powerful, who's wealthy, and he's not afraid to lavish and show it on whomever he chooses. Let's keep reading. Let's pick back up in verse 9. Verse 9, it says, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Ab- and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command and delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now we move from the setting of Esther to the fall of Queen Vashti. And this is the second main character, at least for now, Queen Vashti. It says here when we pick up that she had thrown a feast for all of the women, but the larger story is what the king wants to do. So now he's, he's shown his wealth and his power, and now he wants to parade his wife, the king, before all the people. He wants to show her off, as Karen Jobs, one commentator, notes, the beautiful Vashti wearing her royal diadem was a living trophy of his power and glory. Why does he send seven eunuchs? Most likely, they're going to bring her in, seated on, a, on her throne, and they're going to be the ones that parade her through the city. I guess the king thought when they see Vashti, yeah, let's definitely get behind this king and let's go invade Greece. But let me give you a, a few side comments here. Do you notice the focus on external appearances? It's similar to our day. One commentator notes, men are measured by wealth and women by beauty and sexuality. Or as Tim Keller notes, a man by the size of his wallet and a woman by the size of her dress. The world tells us that we're to judge others based on what they have or what they look like instead of who we are. But what do we see in the story here? Ironically, as the king is showing his wealth and power, Queen Vashti refuses to submit to his authority. And the text doesn't tell us why. We're not told if her refusal was noble or rebellious. We're not told whether it was right or wrong. And I would think, as I've read through Esther, that I think this is the intention of the author. And we're going to see this again and again as we read through Esther. The author, at times, is pretty ambiguous when it comes to moral choices that the characters are having to make. And this is cueing us into how we're to interpret the book of Esther, or not interpret the book of Esther As Karen Jobs notes, the ambiguity is not a problem to overcome in order to interpret the text, but it's part of the literary fabric of the story. She continues, it's natural for the reader, for us, to decide whether we like or dislike a character. But an exemplary exemplary approach produces an inadequate interpretation of the story. And by exemplary approach, here's what she's saying. The main point of Esther is to not look at the main characters and try to figure out, well, should we follow the king or should we follow the queen? Like an example would be, hey, don't follow the king who gets drunk because you'll make bad decisions. That's not the point of the text. 
or don't follow the queen who refused to follow her husband because what happens to her will happen to you. That's not the point of the text. We're not to follow an exemplary approach. So how are we to read it? Well, hang tight with me. We're gonna get there by the time we end today. Let's pick back up here in verse 12. It says, but Queen Vashti refused to come in the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And, this, and at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, then the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before the king Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king. And the princes and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. As we read and hear this story, it's complete irony, and there's a little humor that the author is including here. And here's this. While the king is showing off his power, he can't even control his own wife. That's the irony here. He's the king of this entire empire, but the person closest to him is not even following him. And as you can imagine, this was, in, this was overwhelmingly, extremely embarrassing for the king, which explains why he burned with anger. And so what does the king do? He turns to his closest advisor, seven men, for marriage advice. And Mamukin becomes the voice of these advisors. And, and he speaks up and he says, King, here's what I think you should do. I think you should send a royal order because Mamukin raises the stakes here. He says, Queen Vashti has not just done this against you. She's done this against the entire kingdom. Because when all of the kingdom hears, we're going to have uproar in the entire kingdom. And we're gonna have women all over the kingdom that are gonna be doing the same thing that she has done. He's painting a total breakdown of what he thinks as the proper domestic order. And so what does he propose? He says, King, you need to propose an order, a royal order that is gonna ban Vashti from your presence and that you need to, as verse 19 says, you need to find another queen who is better than she. In other words, who is more obedient than she is. And so as a result, when this royal order goes out, women all over the empire will see the consequences that Vashti faces, and they will also then respect 
their husbands. But let me just hit pause here real quick. As if it weren't clear, this is not a biblical view of marriage. This is not the way God intends for husbands and wives to interact. This is a low view of marriage, a relationship founded on coercion. As one commentator notes, if a man has to command a woman to respect him, then whatever respect is so rendered loses its meaning. Men, listen to me. We do not demand respect. We earn it by displaying the sacrificial love of Jesus. We, learn, we earn it by laying down our lives. Jesus said, greatness is this, you become servant of all. And in fact, I wanna expand this. Anyone who was in a position of power, parents over your children, group leaders, ministry directors, CEOs, department heads, whatever authority you have should be exercised exemplifying the character of Jesus. Should be displayed with great humility, servanthood, and grace. Well, as we read the text here, what we see, irregardless of what the king decides is that we see Vashti's fall. And so what's decreed is that the queen Vashti is stripped of her queenship. We see that highlighted in verse 19, where for the first time, it doesn't say Queen Vashti. In verse 19, we see she's just simply referred to as Vashti. She's now no longer queen. And what's implied here, though not made explicit, is that there is a divorce as what's happened here, and the king is now going to look for another wife, another one who is going to be queen. But there's also, again, irony here. While something embarrassing in the city of Susa, where the king is showing his power and his wife is not following, now the entire empire knows about it. With this decree, everybody knows that his own wife would not even follow him. And so what have we learned so far? And what is the author wanting us to get? Well, the author in chapter one here is painting a picture for what life is like in the Persian palace. And it's providing the context. If we don't get this, we're not gonna understand the rest of Esther. It's helping us understand this. The king has absolute power and wealth and he'll use it to do whatever he pleases often with wrong motives and often with impaired judgment. And he will give little or no regard for its impact on others. In other words, no one is safe in this kingdom, even the ones closest to him, like his own wife. You know what this makes us long for? This makes us long for God to provide the perfect king. As we read the, through the Old Testament, we hear about God's promises for a kingdom. I mean, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. We long for the King Jesus to come, the perfect king who's perfect in character, who always does what's right, what's just. That's what we long for. This story of the queen's fall is preparing the way for us to understand who we're about to be introduced, Esther and Mordecai, and Esther's rise as queen. But here's what we see. The odds are stacked against Esther and Mordecai, who I'm about to introduce you to. They don't stand a chance. You read this and you come away like, man, What's going to happen to the Jewish people? This king could do whatever he wants. How are they going to earn the king's favor? Well, let's keep going. Chapter 2. We're going to go all the way through verse 18 today of chapter 2. Verse 1. This is what God's word says. It says, after these things, 
when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young women who, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so what happens between chapter one and chapter two is this, four years later, we know it's four years later because later on in verse 16, it mentions that this was the seventh year of his reign. Four years had passed. Historically, here's what we know it happened. He went to Greece and you know what happened? He was defeated. So now we're four years later, King Ahasuerus has lost a ton of wealth he did not win and conquer Greece, and he's now a defeated king. And it starts here by saying his anger had abated. He remembered Vashti, what she had done, and, and he longed for someone to replace her. So just like in chapter 1, he turns to his advisors. And what do they suggest? They basically propose that he should hold a beauty pageant. Hold a beauty pageant, bring all the beautiful young virgins, virgins to him in something maybe akin to The Bachelor where he's got his choice of whomever he wants to decide as king. It says here, it mentions a few words. Let me explain for us. It says these young women would be brought to the harem. The, the harem would have been a separate part of the palace where others were housed, typically used for women. And then we're introduced to Haggai here. He was the king's eunuch who would have been in charge and overseeing these women. But what we're not told here is the women that are going to be brought, do they come willingly? We don't know. Again, there's increasing moral ambiguity. And the author is not even giving us judgments on what the king, queen, Haggai, and these women are doing. We're not told whether these women participated consensually or not. But most likely, given that his power has been on display, most likely they didn't have a choice in the matter. As Karen Jobes comments, everyone, whether male or female, was at the disposal of the king's personal whims. Whatever he desired, he went after. Let's keep reading and see what happens in verse 5. So it says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel and custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. We're now introduced to the third main character, Mordecai. Who is Mordecai? What's the text tell us? Right off the bat, Mordecai was a Jew. Now we're understanding contextually what's going on here. How is it that Mordecai, a Jew's living in Susa? Hey, it's making sense now. The exile, they'd been scattered. That's why Mordecai's there. But it tells us here that Mordecai was a Benjaminite, which links him to King Saul, who lived 500 years earlier. His great-grandfather was Kish, who was carried away by King Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, this was the second to last king of Judah, 
who was exiled in 597 BC, as I mentioned earlier. So this is connecting Mordecai with the Jews who've been exiled and scattered among the nations. The reason it connects Mordecai with the exile is it's explaining here how the Jews ended up in Susa. But then we're introduced now to the new second main character. The initial second main character was Queen Vashti, who's now been or going to be replaced by Esther. And what do we find out about Esther? First of all, we see here that Esther, we're, we're told her both of her names. There is, um, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. So Esther was the cousin of Mordecai. Her Persian name uh, was Esther, but her Hebrew name was Hadassah. It says her father, father and mother had already died, so Mordecai had adopted Esther. She's linked quickly to Vashti by this phrase, she was beautiful to look at and lovely to look at. And so we, we're already hearing here a similarity to Queen Vashti, which is foreshadowing what's about to happen. But the reason or the fact that it mentions both, both of her names, it's, it's hinting here that, that at the beginning of Esther, she is a woman with two identities. She's got this Jewish heritage, but now she's living in a pretty secular culture. And, and we're going to see conflict. Esther's going to wrestle with conflict throughout this book here. And yet what we're going to see by the end of Esther is a great transformation where these identities are going to become merged. So let's pick back up in verse 8. It says, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many, it says many, Young women were gathered in, the, in Susa the citadel. Um, Esther also was taken in the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him, and, or the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her, speaking of Esther, with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Again, we're not told here a ton about these women, but the passive character, the passive language in the text here is alluding to that there's events going on almost that are outside of their control. We see the many women here, but we see Esther, a first reference here to her gaining Favor. We're not told how she gained favor. We're just told that she gained favor of Haggai. And so she's now made it to the finals of this beauty pageant. And so her and these seven other ladies are promoted to the best place in the harem. Let's keep going. Verse 10. And so it says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Interesting commentary here. Esther has made it to the finals, but we're told Mordecai told her, don't let them know that you're a Jew. We're not told how Esther felt about that. We're not given any commentary on, man, was this a good decision that Mordecai said? Looking ahead, most likely what was going on here is Mordecai sensed the anti-Semitism that was about to be revealed. Next week, we're going to see in chapter 3 that the Jews are going to be proposed to be annihilated. And so Mordecai really cared for Esther. And so he's telling her, hey, remain quiet. Don't tell them about your Jewish heritage. But just as I'm reading this, you're probably wrestling with a number of questions that the text doesn't answer. Like, if Esther's a Jew, is, is she being faithful to God's law right now? I mean, 
if we were to think about Daniel and his friends, like they were explicitly protesting against the king. Why isn't Esther doing that? Are her motives pure? What about Mordecai's motives? The text is completely ambiguous. And so as I've been alluding here, this is the intention of the divinely inspired author. Again, Karen Jobs, a commentator, notes, the divinely inspired author chose not to reveal Esther's reaction to being taken to the harem or Mordecai's motives for commanding Esther to conceal her identity. It's natural to pass judgment on these two, whether positive or negative, but in doing so, we may miss an important point. The deliberate silence is part of the message. Verse 12. Now when we turn, now when the term came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. How about this beautification plan? An entire year. Did you guys hear that? Six months? With the oil of myrrh, a very expensive perfume, then six months with spices and ointments. And here's again, the king is going all out. He spared no expense in preparing these women for one night with him. While the text isn't explicit, as you can probably hear, there's all kinds of sexual undertones that are happening in the text. After this beautification, each one of these ladies in the finals got one night. They would go in to be with the king. They would, this was their initiation as a concubine. And then they would be sent to the second harem. They would never see the king again unless he desi- decided by name to call them back into his presence. This is clearly not aligned with a biblical sexual ethic where sex is to be reserved for a husband and a wife. These women were being used and exploited at the sole pleasure of the king. And this reinforces what we've seen already. The king had absolute power, and it would prove costly for any woman to exert her independence The odds are not in Esther's favor. Let's wrap up with verses 15 to 18. So when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. The text continues to emphasize what happens. Esther earns favor, not just with Haggai. It says with all the people and now with the king, though we're not told how she won this favor. We assume that she did whatever it took 
to please the king. And so in a great reversal from where we started, you now have Queen Vashti who refuses to come to a feast. So now we have Queen Esther who a feast is being thrown for. Now, the author never mentions marriage language here, but this is exactly what's happening. The Jewish Esther has now married the Gentile King Ahasuerus at the very time, go read Ezra, at the very time when marriage between Jews and Gentiles was a huge issue. And again, you're probably sitting there wanting to know, like, how can Esther justify her actions? But the author just doesn't tell us. So we can, like, we can speculate, like, perhaps she hated this with all of her heart, and she felt completely violated. But on the other hand, Perhaps she loved the attention she got from the most powerful man in the kingdom. We're not told. And so that's why taking an exemplary approach, all we're left to is speculation about the text here. The author is silent. And so what's the point? Why this moral ambiguity? Why this silence? How are we then supposed to interpret and read the text? Well, let me introduce you to the fourth main character. The fourth main character is the invisibly present God. Have, has it crossed your mind yet that God hasn't been mentioned anywhere in the text? In fact, if we weren't in church and we were reading this story, like, would you even think this were in the Bible? which have led some to say it shouldn't be here, but let me, like, that would be a wrong conclusion. This is the word of God, and there's a point here, and the point is this. Even when God is most hidden and invisible, he is still present and working to fulfill his promises and his plan. Can I get an amen? And that's what I want you to see. The main point of the sermon is this. Trust the invisibly present God who is providentially fulfilling his promises and his plan. The author wants us to see that undergirding all of the main characters, actions, motives, or even faithfulness to God's law is the providence of God. He is the one that's working behind the scenes to, to fulfill what he told that he would do to his people. He is infinitely more powerful than King Ahasuerus. You guys believe that? Yes, we've got this great king, but we have the king of kings who's even more powerful. And if you have eyes to see, even though God is not explicitly mentioned anywhere in this book, you're gonna see him all over these pages. His imprint is everywhere. One author says, he is the unseen force behind every apparent coincidence. Let me ask you this. Who is it that's causing Esther to get favor? It is God. God is orchestrating all of these events to save his people. But you may ask, why doesn't the author just tell us, hey, that's God? Here's why. This is the way most of us experience God. Most of us don't experience God through a parting of the Red Sea, through 10 plagues, through manna from heaven, night and day, through resurrections from the dead, through healings. Like, that's not how most of us experience God. Most of us experience God through the ordinary events of life. Where you live, the people you know, the jobs you have, the experiences you go through, these are not coincidences. God is at work. It's our job to ask, God, what are you up to? What are you trying to teach me? How do you want to use me? In fact, basically Esther 
is a, is a practical demonstration of Romans 8, 28, which says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, check this out. Regardless of whether Esther and Mordecai always had the right motives or made the right decision, God was working. He never stops working. Can you say that out with me? He never stops working. Can, he never stops working. He's always working. Even when we don't see it, even we don't feel it, he's working. Church, let's trust that God is at work. And you and I are no different than them. We strive the best of our ability with the wisdom that God's given us in his word to make the best decisions we can. But at the end of the day, God is providentially working even in our failures to accomplish his purpose and his plan. COVID-19 can't derail the promises and plan of God. No matter what happens on Tuesday in the election, it cannot derail the purposes and plan of God. My hope is not in an election on Tuesday. My hope is not in the U.S. government or any political party. My hope is in the God who never stops working and he will always accomplish his purposes and his plans. Kings and presidents may make secular decisions with no thought to God, but make no mistake, God is at work and nothing can thwart his plans. As I conclude, the ultimate display of God's providence is Jesus. Jesus is the offspring from Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the ultimate display that God fulfills his promises. God ultimately saves the Jewish people. He saves them in the book of Esther to make the way for Jesus because Jesus is gonna lay down his life. And you look at the cross and you think, hey, on the cross, God is completely silent. He's abandoned. And we're saying, no, God is at work to save your soul. So I don't know what you're facing today where it's leading you to think God's not at work in my life. Listen to me, he's at work. The problem is we just don't see it. So God, we ask, would you grant us faith today to trust and to believe and to see that you are at work. You never stop working and that you will complete and fulfill your promises and your plan. God, we need you. We need grace to see you. God, lead us and comfort us with these truths of Esther. We pray and ask in Christ's name, amen.